Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. UCD has a particular focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So we've come together with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, in this project called Past, Present and Pride. It's a, it's a way for us to, to work with, to interview, to hear the voices of LGBTI writers um, Irish writers and perhaps some international writers, a way to give voice to, to the LGBTI experience to advance um, issues of, of diversity, inclusion and equality. I'm Paul Dalton. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I work in UCD and I also work in, in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital in Allen Park. So welcome to Molly. Welcome to Past, Present, Pride. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Sean Hewitt today. Sean is our, is our fifth guest in this series. Um, so, Sean, without um, saying an awful lot more, let's uh, start this conversation about your wonderful book that's just about to make its way into the world. Thank you very much for having me. And I know this is a, this is a special time because we're going to come to that, but your, your book your, uh, is, is published in July. In July, on the 14th of July, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think you have it. This is it. <laughs> yeah, hot so off the presses. <laughs> very hot off the press. It only arrived last week. This is the, uh, the hardcover. Um, so yeah, it's coming out in July and looking forward to it. It'll be a busy summer. <laughs> What's it like to have it in your hand? Good. I mean, I didn't want to open it for a while. Uh, it was a bit scary um, because it's something that I guess has been in your head or on a computer screen for so long uh, that to have it in physical physical form um, was both scary because I realized that it was real um, but also it it did have the effect of neutering some of the fears I had about this book because I picked it up and I was like it's only a little book you know, uh, so so that was that was good. Uh, Some of the fears you had about mm. it. What would t- tell me about that? What well, I mean, it's a it's a memoir, and it's a very personal book. Um, and so long as you're writing it, or it doesn't exist physically in the world or with readers, uh, you can almost pretend to yourself that it's just your own piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing then that you have to let other people inside that book and you have to talk about it and you have to uh, let readers make up their own minds about it, um, I suppose there's a, you have to give up control over it. Sure. So there's always a bit of nerves, right. nerves right. about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's something quite nice about it. when it's in physical form, it's done, I can't change it. So you have to freewheel your way through then, yeah. I mean, I'm delighted because I think this is probably the first conversation about the book. Yes. So I feel, yeah. <laughs> I feel really very honoured yeah. and, and I look forward to talking to you uh, about the book. Um, I read it um, and I don't read very quickly, um, but I read it over a weekend um, and couldn't quite put it down. Um, so I'm, I'm 
there's lots on there's lots about the book that I want to talk to you about. Um, you were born in Manchester, in the, in the north of England. Yeah, Warrington. It's just outside Manchester, between Manchester and Liverpool, um, about halfway in between them each. Okay. Uh, it's a small town. Yeah. Uh, with an Irish mum mm-hmm. and an English dad. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and a very Irish grandmother, I believe. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole family... Uh, my dad was only... Um, there was only two of... Uh, he had a, a sister and, and my dad. Uh, whereas my mum is one of nine. Uh, a very Irish Catholic family uh, who had come from... Limerick, um, and so the vast majority of the family was Irish. Okay. Um, so it just seemed very normal to me that everyone, you know, had Irish accents. Or <laughs> yeah. You know, um, had nine brothers yes, or sisters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess it's only as you grow up that you realise that that's not the way everyone else is in, yeah. the, in the world. Yeah. Did, you, did you spend time in, in Ireland as a child? Did you, or, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I still have family in Limerick and we used to uh, go over for summers, usually in Dingle or La Hinch uh, for summer holidays. So yeah, we used to go back into uh, a lot of the time. Um, but even at home, um, you know, my grand's house is always the centre of the family unit. Uh, and Christmas was always rebel songs and whiskey and, you know, it was very Irish yeah. enclave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But actually, uh, Warrington and Liverpool, um, there's a huge Irish population in them. So uh, yeah. uh, half your friends would have an Irish surname okay. or something, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and we yeah. were Catholic and the Catholic church there that we used to go to um, had a had a quite big congregation, which wouldn't be typical in England, uh, apart from, you know, some places that are uh, have a history of migration, you know, Irish migration. What did your grandmother make the book? <laughs> well, I don't think she's going to read it. Thankfully, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one of these things that. that you know, when I talk about the anxieties of the book as well, that does come into your head. But I remember very vividly, actually, my, my dad saying to me, if you worried about what any of us would think about it, you'd never write anything at all, uh, which is a, quite a nice liberating thing for a parent to say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it just meant that I wrote this book uh, speaking not with a, the shadow of, of, a, of a family member or of any sort of presumed judgment over me. Uh, I had to only speak to the book itself um, and then hope that people meet it where I asked them to, to meet them. Um, there is a lot of uh, honesty in this book uh, that I think would be, um, <laughs> I don't know, shocking in the way that I... Now, having read, uh, having written the book, I have no, I have very little shame left about uh, the things in in the book. Um, and I think, in some ways, being that honest with yourself for a long time really neuters the the potential kind of um, 
you know, pinpricks yeah. that, the, that these yeah. uh, moments might yeah. have. And actually, when you write it down, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Something about giving it voice. And, and, I, and I hope it's something that we can come back to because mm. that, that kind of thread of shame mm-hmm. um, is something um, I was very conscious of in reading your book and your poetry. Mm. Um, and something, Sean, about... Um, the kind of giving voice to shame, you know, th- that idea that shame loves secrecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, shame uh, blossoms when it's when it's secret and when it's unspoken. Mm-hmm. So, so I was reading in you uh, an articulation, a putting of words onto something that uh, potentially is uh, could be very shaming and very silencing. So it's the almost yes. antidote to that. Is yeah. that, is that. Am I reading? Am I reading too much into? Yeah. No. I think I think that's right. I mean, a large amount of the the memoir is about lies. You know, it's a, it's about the lies that you tell yourself as you grow up, or the lies you tell to other people in order to protect either yourself or them. And eventually, I think as I went through, I realized that I had invented this entire web of fictionality as a way of deflecting from shame in the book. And the memoir in its, in its most raw form is, is a form of truth-telling. Um, so the way of exercising all of the lies is to, is to finally kind of put it out as, a, as an act of, of truth-telling. And so even though the book does circle around shame and it circles around lies. I hope it's also kind of liberatory by the end of it in that um, it attempts to kind of confront lies and shame head on and to move past them. Um, so those things haunt the book, um, but the aim of it was to kind of confront them and, and give a form to, to moving beyond them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Sean, is is a creative memoir is that a is is that a category and is that what this is because I, I you you you're clear towards the end or in in, in um, towards the, at the end of the book saying look some of these characters are, are kind of blended and talk to me a little bit about that about memoir and creativity yeah uh, yeah so I I mean in my head I call this a sort of gothic memoir or a gothic coming of age memoir. And the reason I think that that um, adjective there, gothic, is really important is because I wanted this book to have the quality. It is, it is true on multiple levels. Um, this is not only a book that is you know, true in a real life sense but it also is true to my experience. And sometimes experience shifts reality into ways that appear untrue or supernatural. Um, So in some of the experiences that I recount in the book, because I was under a lot of stress or or, um, always always isolated, um, my mind made a gothic world of the world that was real. Uh, So it only seemed right to me that I write a gothic memoir. Um, So you could read it in some ways as a a creative text, and of course it is. Uh, It has to um, 
it has to make a narrative out of life, and those two things are, are not easily uh, joined together. Um, you can't give all of the detail that you experienced in real life because it wouldn't fit into a, into a book. Um, even the speaking voice of this book has to be one consistent version of myself, um, which is the writer version of myself, you know, who can say certain things and, um, and have a certain intonation even. Um, but I wanted this to slip through uh, the factual um, realm of nonfiction and to create a sort of porous Gothic world in which ghosts might come back or um, fragments of history uh, that might also reflect what was going on in my mind at any given time. Um, so there are moments in the book when the world to me becomes evil or gothic or uh, very uncanny. Um, and I wanted to reflect that in, in your experience as a reader so that you would feel yourself to be in perhaps a terrifying world or perhaps a very dark world, uh, perhaps a world in which the real has shifted into something else. Mm. Mm. And, and, and I had several of those experiences reading it, which yeah. and I'm, I'm dying to talk to you a little bit more about. Sean, the idea of the kind of multiple selves mm. Um, and this is my um, psychology 101. Mm -hmm. Growing up in the UK, in the north of England, Irish parents, you're, you're an Irish citizen, you're, you, you brought, born and, and brought up in England. The kind of multiple identities, the movement from I think you would describe as a, as a working class, your dad, you know, mm -hmm. Dad was your dad was a um, what did what did you? Do? He was a joiner. Yeah, yeah, he was a joiner. Yeah. You know, yeah. your mum was a teacher. Mm. I was interested about how this Sean mm -hmm. went from there uh, to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you, you tell me a little bit about that transition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk about it in the book, and and uh, I think one of the key reasons. I mean, I am. Not typical of my family in that way. Uh, my elder brother is a joiner too, and my younger brother is very sporty, which I'm not. Um, and I channeled all of my energies into books and reading. And I think looking back, although this isn't all of it, but it, it might be part of an explanation, is that those were things that were rewarded by uh, the world around me. And if I felt that I needed to uh, fit into that world or, or to cover something shameful up about me, the best way of doing that was to lean into everything that was praised in that world. So that became book learning. It became doing well in exams. It became being a good boy, you know. Um, so all of those things kind of fed into um, uh, a need, I think, to always be the best version of of um, of what was held up as a, as a as a good person. Um, so, although I'm very grateful for it in some ways, and I and I did very much enjoy, uh, you know, going to Cambridge, reading a lot. Uh, I think that is also part of the reason why I was so intent on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. And Sean, maybe if I, so, so that I have, kind of have that, that um, the kind of best little boy in the mm. best little boy in the class, mm. um, growing up, gay, and all that that means. Mm. Uh, so in needing to, and if I'm over interpreting, please tell me, <laughs> but needing to needing to kind of secure or protect my place in the world. Yeah. So becoming the best little boy, mum's best little boy, whatever it yeah. might have been, that, that, that was some of your experience, not yeah. all of it. Yeah, I mean, I talk about, and in the book I use the, the metaphor of kind of building a, a sort of suit of armour uh, yeah. to protect um, yourself, and that armour is given to you, yeah. um, you know. Uh, an education is, is a breastplate on the yeah. armor. The church is a, a shield, and and you put it all on, and um, and eventually you emerge out into adulthood, um, and you have to unpick the the versions of you that you've built, um, and ask which bit was given to me and which bit yeah. was was my own. And the book moves towards a point at which. Towards the end, uh, it's not really a spoiler, um, but I'm looking at a, a photograph of myself when I was five or six years old. Um, and in the, the polarization of, of that moment, I am two selves uh, and I'm looking across the 20 odd years at another version of myself and we're confronting each other. Um, where did you go and who are you? Yeah. Um, and attempting to kind of reconcile those two things um, or to bring more of that, that uncorrupted version of yourself into the present again is part of the, the liberation that the book tries to, to put forward. Mm. Um, so what might it mean uh, for us to... Um, recreate ourselves in our own image uh, rather than in someone else's image. Um, that was one of the key questions of the book. And in writing a memoir, what I found was interesting about the, the form of it was that we're often, um, they're often quite linear and looking forward narratives. Uh, we get through something and then we are released into something at the end. Whereas actually what I realized that I couldn't be looking forward without going all the way back. Um, so it was a, an act of recovery mm -hmm. as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't an act of, mm -hmm. of rebuilding or overcoming and going forward. It was an act yeah. of, of picking up versions from the past as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it struck me as an act of, of psychological integration. Mm. You know, mm. not to sound too grand mm. about yeah. it, but a, a, a yeah. real act of of, of integration. Mm. Um, you, you, you and you mentioned in that the kind of the uncorrupted version mm. or the I, I'm wondering about the corrupting influences. Yeah. What were the influences that that corrupted? Well, I mean, you overhear a lot as a child. One of the key questions that I had in this book was, how did I pick up a number of signals from the culture uh, which taught me things that I was never directly taught. Um, so how did I pick up that it was not a good idea to be gay? Or how did I pick up the sense of reactions to it when I hadn't myself tested that reaction? 
And this was one of the key questions uh, in the book does a number of deep dives. And, and at one point I go back uh, to my childhood. And, you know, I remember, for example, uh, when Will Young won Pop Idol. Um, and this is one of the things that I, I guess I wouldn't have remembered had I not thought it was significant to me at the time. But he won and then, then he came out. And everyone was talking about it. I was only about six or seven. Um, everybody was saying, well, did we, were we hoodwinked into voting for him? Would we have voted for him if we knew? Uh, the other, Gareth Gates, should have won instead, and all of this. So you pick up the messaging of what will happen when you come out. You're the source of gossip. Uh, you're the, the idea is that you have perhaps tricked everyone uh, that you're an inherently deceptive person um, and that people will, will be angry. Um, so even as a six-year-old, you, you register that and you pick it up. Um, so I think that's just one example of how the messaging starts to happen. Um, and because of that, uh, you begin to construct your lie. You know, you begin to, to fictionalize yourself. Um, and... You can't fully do that. That's not a, something I think that can never be entirely successful because you've got another self in there bashing against the wall wanting to come out. Um, so you build this uh, fictional version of yourself in the full knowledge that at some point you will have to dismantle that. Um, and we might think of coming out as a way of dismantling or leaving behind. Uh, but I don't think it's that easy. Uh, I think um, you, you come out, you give up the fictionality, um, but you find that actually you're still acting the part of your earlier self. It's not that easy to mm. unpick mm. the two mm. versions. Mm. Um, and so I think the, you know, one of the tasks of adult life then for me has been to, to more completely unpick that version. Um, so that I might get to a place where I have reached some less corrupted version yeah. of myself yeah. um, and to gain power over yeah. what that self is. Um, so I guess that's what I mean yeah. by an uncorrupted and corrupted self. And, and um, the reason that the book goes back in time and has this kind of psychological uh, voyaging into the into the darkness is to get to a place eventually where things are unpicked enough to start again or, or to um to have undone some things or mm. in terms of the ghosts in the book to have exercised mm. uh, some of those ghosts mm. yeah and and sean in the kind of historical context um that you've grown up in and mm. we're, we're, we're a part of mm. Um, I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking about your work with the, uh, the National Library in the, the Queer Archive. Mm -hmm. You were the first uh, poet in residence. That's right. Someone got yeah. that right? Yeah. Um, and, and how some of that work is about unpicking, mm -hmm. uh, uncorrupting, mm -hmm. reclaiming um, stories, lives, lived experience. Um, and I think we probably can't have that conversation today 
without remembering the men who were killed mm. in Sligo. Yeah. Aidan yeah. Moffat and mm. Michael Sneen mm. uh, a, a month ago. Yes, not long ago at all. And there's, a, you know, only just last week, I think, two, um, two queer women were attacked in Dublin, uh, yeah. just, just near the, near the George. Um, the archival research is strange in some ways, and I do some archival research in the book too. I look at my, at the Warrington Guardian, the, the local newspaper, because uh, that's what I would have read. That, that's another source of kind of cultural messaging that I would have picked up. Yeah. Um, and actually, you don't have to go that far back in time to reach a very unsettling world. Um, in this book, uh, 2005, 2006 are some of the articles I'm looking for, which doesn't seem to me at least to be a great deal of time ago. Uh, and you have, you know, uh, uh, perverts, and yeah. you have, um, yeah. you know, the, this sort of language of, of uh, people being arrested, and, yeah. and, the, and you pick that up. Um, one thing I find looking at the Irish queer archive is um, actually how how anxiety-inducing it can be to confront certain things in that history. Because um, you read it and it starts to unlock certain things in your head. Um, but also you're reading about uh, people just like you, or similar enough to you, uh, that have been treated in all sorts of ways because of that commonality. So you begin to... Um, you know, I was working in there all across the summer and there were some days where I had to stop halfway through mm. and just go for a walk because mm. I was, I thought it was a mm. bit much and, and I hadn't expected that mm. even just something as apparently academic as, as sitting in a library and looking into manuscripts mm. uh, might begin to make you tremble. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it did. It, mm -hmm. did. it made me, uh, it did begin to unpick me in a way that... I wasn't prepared for. Um, and the nice thing is when you get to, to rewrite it, um, and that is without sounding egotistical, uh, there is something nice about being given a received narrative and then turning it around and writing it back. Um, uh, you, 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 you certainly mentioned um, in the past the, the murder of David Flynn in, in uh, 1982. Declan Flynn, yeah. Declan Flynn, yeah. excuse me, Declan yeah. Flynn, in mm -hmm. 1982, mm -hmm. um, and how how influential mm. um, reading about that mm. in well in mm. the archive is, and mm. how that has has shaped um, certainly some of your poetry. Yeah. I, I I think is that is that the case? Yeah. So I, I had written this series of poems, uh, ten poems based on the archival material, and um, a couple of them are. Um, are about Declan Flynn's murder, um, which could be said to have precipitated the, the Pride, um, the, the first Dublin Pride or, or protest or march. Um, I have one poem entirely in the voice of his killers and then one in, um, in Declan and Declan's family's voice. And the way I had done it was to... Um, use phrases from the newspaper and court uh, proceedings. Um, so to let the killers speak and then to let uh, the family speak. Um, but I think he's one of these 
figures that, again, haunts uh, Dublin or, or, or the Irish queer imagination. There's a brilliant photograph uh, in the Zurich Portrait Prize at the moment by Brian Teeling. Um, it's called Declan Flynn in Dublin, uh, but it's just a, a portrait of the empty bench. Um, you know, mm. what's left of him is that is his absence, that he's not there. And I think that absence does haunt a community uh, and, and more recent absences yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and, and so it seems very real to me that we might confront these things through um, through a gothic mode, through, through uh, a sense of the supernatural, because it doesn't seem to me to be an unreal, uh, unreal in the sense of how we live our lives. We're very aware of these absences. Uh, we're very aware of these um, ghostly figures um, that might, but for different circumstances, have been us mm. or, or, or mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we're constantly given these um, these sets of warnings and, and these these uh, crises. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that those can shatter an entire community is because uh, they really hit to the heart of, of what, it, mm -hmm. what might be terrifying mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. any given time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your, 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 po your poetry as a as a way to, to, again, to give voice, to make sense, to um, immortalize, to uh, around around um, many of these issues, um, and and the the life and death of your of your father. Mm. Um, I know that your your volume of poetry um, was very closely associated when your dad got mm -hmm. got very sick and mm -hmm. and died is yeah. is yeah tell yeah. me tell me a little bit about that yeah so dad died um in 2019 the year before tongs of fire my first collection came out um but i had signed the contract uh for the book on the day that he died. Uh, he did know it was coming out because the contract took a while before it came through. Uh, but it, it had this weird, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, when someone in a family dies and then you have this birth uh, of someone mm. else and often people kind of think about it in, in those terms. Um, the book was very closely related to, uh, to his death. And in fact, I rewrote the final section of the book uh, to be about uh, dad's illness and death. Um, and I guess to me, sometimes the function of, of writing is to, to hold in place um, something that otherwise slips through time um, and also to work it out uh, into a new way. Uh, so for me, at least, um, and other, other readers have told me as well, um, those poems become vessels for past people to live in. Um, you know, so I have, yeah. have people who've read them whose you know, uh, friends or mothers or whatever have died, and they can read the poems and situate 
yeah. their mother inside that poem or, or their uncle or their brother or whatever it is. Um, so they become kind of holding spaces in that way. Um, and I think often written works of, of literature become those kind of stops in time or, yeah. or, or moments of yeah. um, uh, places to, to work through and reflect yeah. on things. Yeah. He, he, born, born, out of, born out of loss, mm -hmm. born out of, of deep loss yeah. and, and deep suffering. Yeah. You, you, and, and I've heard you say somewhere else about, um, I, may, I hope I have this right, but that you're learning, you're, you're learning to forgive the poems mm -hmm. you're, <laughs> a, yeah. a, a number of years later. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I, I have said that. Yeah. I must have forgiven them because I can't, I, I can't now remember yeah. uh, what they'd done wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess what they had done wrong is, is, is the fact of their birth was um, out of a very difficult time. Um, and I guess again with uh, All Down Darkness Wide as well, uh, it is a book that um, has to hold a certain amount of yourself if it's to be any good. Um, and without being too vampiric about the whole thing, you know, I have to uh, suffer in some ways again to rewrite these things. Um, but I wouldn't do it did I not think that they would be useful. Um, or, um, and likewise with the poems too. Um, my instinct when, when going through something that I can't process or, or, or a time that seems to be already moving into the past, uh, you know, in that very, mm -hmm. in that way that you become very conscious sometimes of, of time always going forward uh, or, or the passage of time uh, is to um, memorialize it uh, in some way and to hope that that would be useful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there is a sense, I think, isn't there, of, uh, of creating some sort of, a form of chronology, a form of uh, emotional, psychological kind of movement or stages mm. when it, certainly when it, when it comes to grief, yeah. putting, putting yeah. Some, some kind of shape on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, putting form onto something or at least pulling things into meaning uh, can be very... Well, it can be quite liberatory in some ways because you, you don't have to live in the, this fibrous mess in which things mm. don't always seem to make sense. Um, I found when writing um, the memoir that there were days when I was looking, you know, I was traveling back in time in my head and finding moments that suddenly connected to other moments. Uh, so lying as a, as a teenager, um, to friends at school, uh, you know, spread, I used to spread rumours about yeah. myself that I'd kissed girls um, just so the rumour would spread and I'd be safe for a little bit longer. Then uh, led up to, to me lying um, later on in the story as an adult to, to friends or, or to, to my um, boyfriend or to my parents. And, um, and you realise that these things don't come out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, I, I've, um, I've taken refuge in fiction, yeah. uh, my own fictions, too many times. Um, and there gets to be a point at which you can no longer tell the truth. 
because you've wrapped yourself up in too many layers of, yeah. of, um, yeah. of fiction. Um, so I guess one of the, the hopes of, of the book and in narrativizing everything is to free mm. not only myself from the fictions, but also in the hope that if a reader reads it, mm. they might themselves feel freed mm. um, by the acknowledging of yeah. those fictions. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And the, 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 a kind of an unraveling, mm. um, personally, mm. an unraveling of aspects or pieces mm. of my own uh, fiction or life or um, an unraveling of that by, by listening, hearing, experiencing someone else's story and the idea that the, the past is never, um, never very far away from us. Yeah. Um, you, and I, 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 think it, I, th I think, again, it's one of those themes I, I've noticed in the book is, is that the, every childhood lasts a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm. The impact of all of those formative mm. experiences yeah. um, have um, have shape and continue to shape. Yeah. Um, yes. And 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 putting words on on them um, maybe is a way, as you say, is a way to untangle. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the on the cover of the book, we have um, the two. Uh, these are two of the four disgraces, they're called. Um, these are characters from, from classical um, myths. And you can see them both falling here. One of them has fallen off the chariot, another one out of the tree. And they have this kind of tumbling uh, motion. And the more I look at it, um, the less I think of, of the disgrace of the fall uh, and the more of a kind of freedom in the tumbling. And in the book, you know, I, I tumble back in time often towards the child. Um, but it's not just to go back. It's also about the retrieval, the, the, the journey back out. I was thinking a lot about um, these journeys to the un underworld. Um, I make a little joke about it in the in the beginning where I'm holding my phone up in a graveyard and I say it's like a, my golden bow, uh, like Aeneas uses to, um, to go into the underworld and to come back. And the most important thing is the coming back. Um, so I wanted to, to tumble back into childhood and then way beyond, you know, uh, 150 years ago, uh, longer, um, via these ghosts, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Corin Boyer, um, and to bring something back, uh, to say what can I, it, it's always got to be worth the going down. Um, so the going down might be harrowing, um, but what makes it worth it is that I can bring something back. Um, so there might be some sort of talisman or lesson mm -hmm. or a bit of light uh, mm -hmm. that I bring back to the surface. Mm -hmm. um, so the book, you know, it has this basically year-long overarching narrative. Um, and then at various points it tumbles mm. back in time uh, in search of a sort of light or lesson. Um, and often the person waiting at the end of that tumbling is, is the little 
boy, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the little boy can teach you a lot mm-hmm. more than you think. Mm. Mm. And and tell me something about moving from from poetry to 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 memoir mm. to from from relatively few words yeah. to uh, lots and lots of words. Yeah. What? Tell me about that. Why 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 the move? And and uh, I guess there'll be a move back. And you know, yes, but yeah. Tell tell me about that. Um, I wanted to make use of story um, and to really sink you as a reader into an atmosphere um, that I didn't think that poetry necessarily could. Uh, Poetry can be very good at being elliptical or minimal or suggesting things without necessarily giving everything away. but I wanted you to know while reading this book that it was real, that it happened, the reasons for it, uh, and also to be able to talk at length about those things. Um, and I began to be very excited by the, the world building that you can do mm. in, a, in a prose book. Um, and suddenly you can walk all the way through that world and you can pick things up and you can tumble back in time and you can go across continents mm-hmm. and centuries and uh, you can really rove through it and you can take a reader by the hand and walk them through it. Um, and that was something I had never done in the poems. Mm. Um, I had never um, had, you know, it, as a sort of adventure or a sort of voyage, uh, and I can take you with me uh, and and show you something, and I can terrify you, and I can disturb you, mm. and then I can comfort you, and I can show mm. you these beautiful mm. things, and then I can show you why things happened. Um, it felt like something that I, I just really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed uh, being mm-hmm. able to build a world mm-hmm. um, and to move around mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. And, and, and you do move the reader around. We, you, you, we, <laughs> yes. move, from con- we move continents. Yeah. Um, and, and I was really struck by the, the, the natural world, the, the seasonality. And again, not, not to give too much yeah. away, yeah. but the, the, the seasonality mm-hmm. um, that in some ways I thought mirrored maybe your internal psychological world. Mm. So again, not giving too much away, but we're, we're, in, we're in, uh, in South America. Yeah. So we go from South America to Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the changing, the changing light the changing temperature, mm. uh, the amount of daylight. Yeah. I think um, for in some, I, I found myself kind of carried by that yeah. um, in a very inquisitive, almost visceral kind of way. Mm. So when we're in, in Sweden for a lot of the time, and mm. um, there's three or four hours of light yeah. during the day, yeah. in direct contrast yeah. to, to when we're in, in South America, mm. Um, and all those very beautifully and sensually written scenes that involve water, mm. which I, I, yeah. I really want to <laughs> ask you something about as well. But so, so 
Uh, tell me a little bit about that. About, yeah. yeah, I mean, in some ways, that is how it happened. Um, and, you know, it, it begins with, there is a romance in the book that is sunshine and tans and, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, drinking by the beach yeah. and, and, and all of that. And, and the... When we move to Sweden in the book, the winter comes in yeah. at the same time as depression begins to pull through the book. And in some ways that was confusing to me um, as it happened in real life because you hear a lot of people talk about kind of seasonal mm. depression. Mm. And I began to think, oh, I wonder if that is it. Um, but very quickly, um, you know, the darkness began to mirror my own mood and situation. I, thought, I think of it almost as, uh, you know, it's like The Shining or something. Uh, you know, that you become more isolated, uh, you become darker, um, things start to slip out of the real, um, and you're isolated in a country you don't know yeah. with only one other person, um, and everything begins to slip. Um, the point there is that outside is hostile and cold. Um, and there were moments when I lived there that I used to walk out at night um, when I was trying to come to terms with, uh, with quite a, a, a big trauma. Um, and I talk in the book about ghosting myself or, or pretending that I don't exist, uh, wandering around these woods. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the sense of encroaching darkness was enveloping to me. Mm. Um, and so I wanted, uh, by turn, to envelop you. Um, I wanted you to feel claustrophobic. Uh, I wanted you to feel cold, dark. Yeah. Uh, isolated. And I also needed to give you the feeling of what that polar opposite is like, um, because you need to feel um, the sun and the heat and the freedom um, for you to fully realize what was lost or what is missing. Mm -hmm. uh, and had I just plunged you straight into the darkness, um, it may have been too much. And you also perhaps wouldn't have realized um, what it was that had been lost or, or where mm -hmm. we were trying to get back to. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, the, the seasonality of the book was important in that way. Uh, it does mirror the mental states. Um, mm -hmm. And that, as I said, is both real and, yeah. and uh, just happily yeah. uh, a sort of pathetic fallacy. Um, and and yeah. John, the seasonality, the seasonality of relationships, mm. is, yeah. is 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 that there? Yes. Is that reflecting yeah, yeah. that too? Yeah, I think the seasonality of of life in some way. You know, this this is a book that, um, although it, the the key narrative is a relationship I had for uh, five years or so in the middle of my 20s, uh, the majority of my adult life up until that point. Um, and 
Thank you. Um, and this seasonality is important because when you first fall in love, the world is sunny, you know, uh, especially when it's kind of your first boyfriend and you have this wave of romance. And also as a young person, or at least I was, I probably still am, very given over to ro romanticism. Um, it was all ideals, it was all uh, romance. It was someone else could cure everything yeah. about the world. And, and it would often be experienced like that too. Um, I would often feel very uh, changed by other people. Um, and the flip side of that is that when things don't go well for someone else, you're dragged straight into it because you've attached <laughs> your, mm -hmm. your uh, mm -hmm. happiness and sadness mm -hmm. to someone else. Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, the, these very uh, turbulent seasons that the relationship has in the book are, are a sort of codependency in, in, mm -hmm. um, in the way that uh, I am merged into other people. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an attempt of recovery as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, put, to pull mm -hmm. myself back out of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And do you, do you think, or maybe, I've often thought yeah. that the, uh, and we, t we touched on this earlier on, but the kind of identity formation, you know, these kind of classic psychological stages mm -hmm. that we're, we're mm -hmm. supposed to go through. Um, I think there's a lot of validity in them, to be honest, but the, the, the kind of identity formation that at some point in our kind of late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, we were expected to form a relatively stable identity. Mm -hmm. I don't mean one that suffocates yeah. or that's, yeah. that's binary, no. Yeah. But I think that as LGBTI plus people, I think that gets delayed. Mm. Um, and it takes us a little bit longer, maybe even a decade or so longer, <laughs> yeah. to to get some of that um, identity formation mm. um, in place. Does that make a? I think that would. That seems about right to me. Um, I think as a as an adolescent, you you undergo a lot of your identity formation as a LGBTQ plus person. Um, either in hiding yeah. or, um, or you make two, as I've said, yeah. or, or more than two. Um, and it's only over your 20s, perhaps, that you begin to test out the real one yeah. and to, uh, to begin to figure out what it is. Um, and often as well, the identity is formed, I think, in isolation mm. from other people. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is, is this seeming miracle to me that I wasn't alone. You know, this discovery that, oh, I didn't have to figure it all out by myself, although I have done. Yeah. Uh, and then to realize that, oh, everyone else figured it out to this point too. You know, um, everyone went through uh, turmoil, coming out, doing, you know, yeah. try, uh, finding their way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you think that you've invented it all on your own. Yeah. Uh, and then you realize you haven't. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me uh, that really it's only at the end of the book that I begin to 
confront the idea of, I call it self-making in the book, you know, uh, and, I, and I talk about what it would be to, self, to make a self. Um, and that's at yeah. the age of 28, 29, yeah. and, yeah. I'm, and it was a key pressing question for me at that age. Yeah. Uh, what do I do now? And, and the consciousness of it, I think, is important too, because it's not something that was an organic process that was done in community with other people. Mm, mm, um, mm. So very self-consciously, there was a moment of my life where I had to think, right, how do I build yeah. a person? Which is a very odd thing to, to have to yeah. think your way through. And it do, you know, Sean, it take to be not to be too cliched about it, but it takes a village. Mm. We we don't achieve that sense of identity um, in isolation. Mm. It, it's only done through mm. community. Mm. I I really do believe, and I think that's some of the motivation for for this work that we're doing for this the, these series of conversations, um, because that is about creating awareness, mm. conversations, context mm. for other people emerging into yeah. the world. Yeah. That there is a, um, is a template, there's a, you know, mm. I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not alone. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. it's very, you know. I mean, you know, there are cliches, um, but, you know, people often say, write the book you wish you could have read, um, or the book that you needed. And I had never read this book mm. so I set out to write it mm. and um, and I hope that even just in doing that you give a template or you give just a, a hand held out to someone else or a common understanding um, and that that might be enough. Of... I wish it was around when I was um, a late teenager mm. or young I wish mm. I wish there were I wish this was around then. Mm. Um, as a as a guide, as a mm. as another way, mm. like the 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 only um, the only guide or the only nod that I had was there was a there was a gay character in EastEnders, mm -hmm. yeah. and that was it. Yeah. No one, I mean, that, that was it. Yeah. Um, so 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 these words, these books, I I I, I think provide a pathway. Um, a guide for, for lots of people. Yeah, I hope so. You, um, as, we, as, we move towards, as we move towards a close, um, I went down the a complete rabbit hole, uh, uh, the Jared Manley Hopkins oh, yeah. rabbit hole. Um, and when people read your book, they'll know why. <laughs> um, because Jared Manley Hopkins, to my mind, is probably uh, uh, one of the most central characters in the, in, yeah. in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and you've, you've mentioned him um, and you've, you, you've alluded to or mentioned to mystery, yeah. to what's not seen. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say that we're in Newman House on St. Stephen's Green. Yeah. Um, and Jared Manley's bedroom and office is actually next door, yeah. you know this. Yeah. And he died in this building. Mm -hmm. At 47 years of yeah. age, he was appointed professor of Greek and Latin, I believe, in UC, in, when UCD was beginning its life. Um, so, so Jared Manley Hopkins is all around us. Mm. I'm really interested to know <laughs> why he's so important to you. Yeah, so he appears as 
one of these, you know, I call them a chosen family of ghosts in the book, and he's, he's kind of the daddy of my chosen family of ghosts that, that appear. Um, and you wouldn't have to know anything about Hopkins to read the book. Uh, he kind of appears as a, as a, as a real enough ghost. Um, and the, the title, All Down Darkness Wide, is taken from one of his poems. Um, and that seemed to capture the idea of, in the, in the poem, a, uh, a person is, a man is walking with a lantern through the night and you can see it swinging and Hopkins is asking where he's going. So it seemed to capture some of that kind of historical sweep of the book. Um, he's a person I've always been fascinated by. Uh, he was a poet and a priest. Um, he was also, I don't know what label would be best to give him. Uh, it would appear to me uh, he was a gay man. Um, he has written uh, some very frank diaries, um, which I have impertinently uh, <laughs> used yeah. here. Um, and yeah, he, he becomes in the book a sort of guiding figure for me. Um, someone who can articulate things that I have felt um, sometimes before I felt them or as I'm feeling them. Um, he also brings in uh, the key question, or one of the key questions of the book, which is, is religion and sexuality. Mm. Um, he, he is tortured um, by the opposition between these two things. Uh, and you can see it coming up again and again in his diary, mm. uh, the sense of shame, uh, of, of self-harm uh, that yeah. he goes through. Um, so I call him up in the book um, as a way of seeking guidance, uh, uh, as a way of turning to someone who's been there before me. Uh, you know, we, we talk about books that we wish had been there. Uh, he was one of the people that was there for me. So I call him up into the book as a sort of um, from beyond the grave to, to talk uh, to us. So perhaps he's listening. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Maybe he's would not he happy. Would he approve? I doubt it. No, he'd be uh, giving away all his secrets. Um, <laughs> no, he, he maybe would. Uh, maybe he'd forgive me now. Um, he's, I've always felt very close to him. Um, you know, in that very strange way that when you read the work of a writer or perhaps a musician, you listen to music or a poem and you almost feel that they know you and in turn you know them. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantasy that uh, nevertheless is, is very real. Yeah. Um, and I've always felt in some way that were his ghost to appear, he would already know who I was. Mm because I feel mm, that I have mm, this closeness mm, to him. Mm. Um, so mm. as characters in a memoir go, he's as real to me as, <laughs> as mm -hmm. other people, so mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you know, that kind of tension between religion, mm. um, the mysterious, mm. the mystical, mm. sexuality, mm. shame, mm. That, that I think um, you, 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 you capture uh, beautifully um, 
on the part of um, Hopkins, mm. um, and and in some ways your your own ex- yeah. pull or tension in those areas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in the book, so there is a long sequence in which, where I go on the pilgrimage to Lords, um, and uh, there is a a moment at which I have an encounter with a closeted priest as well. Um, and it also opens in a graveyard uh, with a church looming over, over me. Um, the church is something, when I thought of retrieval, uh, or I thought of this kind of time-traveling tra- time treasure hunt of the book, um, they had something I wanted to steal back under cover of darkness, yeah. um, which was God or spirituality. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't ready to let them take it. Um, so there are a kind of uh, this Lord sequence in the book uh, ends with me stealing God and running away with him. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, mm-hmm. and that is quite um, quite true for me in, in some ways yeah. uh, because. Hopkins's, and a thing I love about Hopkins's writing is that he makes the world seem magical. Yeah. You know, everything is. He has this brilliant um, line that I quote in the book where he says that if you touch the world rightly, um, kind of drops fire and rings and, yeah. and tells of God. Um, and I didn't think it was fair that only the church could have that yeah. world. Um, so. Uh, that is another thing that I, I steal back in order to make. Uh, I really, I really uh, felt you do that in the book, a a, a reclaiming, um, a an, an uncorrupting, yeah, um, of the human impulse, the human draw towards mystery. Mm. And if we loads more time, I'd love to talk to you about ritual as well, yeah. the kind of mystery and ritual. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, I have thought and I've kind of said before that the awful, the awful brutality that um, we as a nation of people have experienced, many people have experienced at the hands of the Catholic mm. Church. Um, I do think that one of the real tragedies in all of that is that mystery, Mm. um, ritual, um, the mystical Mm. has been maybe temporarily taken away from us. And I'm always interested when I see artists, writers, artists actively reclaiming yeah. Um, and that makes me very happy. And, and that's what I... <laughs> yeah, so I, I yeah. wanted to steal it back. It had, yeah. had always been something that I was fascinated by, even as a child. Yeah. Um, ritual, incense, uh, yeah. singing. I love church music. Yeah. Um, I love hymns. Um, I love the Bible. I, li- I like uh, the cadence of the Bible yeah. and the stories of the Bible. Um, and I think that it's wrong to say that we can't pick and choose. Um, yeah. I'm quite happy to pick and choose. Uh, <laughs> I pick and choose all the time. And, and part, of the, part of the book is a, is a, is a picking yeah. and choosing. Yeah. Um, and I, I pick the things that I want, mm. mystery, yeah. ritual, uh, a sort of 
enchanted natural yeah. worlds, um, a reverence, yeah. uh, the sacred. Yeah. And I take them uh, and I leave other, uh, I leave the shame and the, you, <laughs> the, you the do. rules behind. You do. Yeah. You do. And you, to, to my mind, you give a permission for other people to do the mm. same thing. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I'm, 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 you, you, you talk and you write beautifully about that, that um, occasion in, in Lourdes when you were there as a young man mm. um, and um, having, taking a bath in, in the mm-hmm in the holy in yeah. the water yeah. in, in, in Lourdes um, and I think you also wrote about um, Jared Manley Hopkins well certainly or at least I read mm-hmm. as a, as a schoolboy mm-hmm. he he would um, he'd go to the ponds mm-hmm. in, in yeah. Hampstead Heath mm-hmm. um, and really he describes I think in, in, in a couple of different places how there how that experience for him was one um, well in some cases erotic mm-hmm. Uh, and mm. um, deeply and deeply spiritual. Yeah. Um, so something about water, and then yeah. you, you you commented in the book, and I had to go and have a look at it. You said something about when how the uh, Jesuit novices mm. um, okay. were the, the, the when they had a bath mm. um, that the water was coloured yeah. to protect their yes. modesty. Am modesty I, powder. Modesty yeah. powder. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, they used to. to to put it in the bath, modesty powder. Uh, there's there's a poem that Ho- Hopkins wrote, and it was one of his last poems. So it's interesting because you talk about him swimming on Hampstead Heath as a as a young man, and one of the last poems he writes is called Epithalamium, uh, a marriage poem. But it's not at all about marriage in in the traditional sense. It's all of these boys swimming in the water. Uh, and he spends ages, like all this luscious detail of, of their bodies flinging into the water in the sunlight. Um, and it, it ends with a series of questions. It's not a finished poem, but one of them is, what is water spousal love? Uh, so it's the thing that connects all the bodies of the men in the pond. You know, it's their way of touching each other. It's something that is sustaining, but kind of unfelt. Uh, so he, he has this way of turning the homoerotic through the water into something holy, almost a sacrament of, of the men swimming together. And I always think it's quite nice that that's one of his last poems mm. because it seems to be a quite help, hopeful uh, writing of, of uh, the homoerotic uh, or this sense of peace with, with other men. Uh, but yeah, there's something Odd. I mean, the, one of the reasons that bathing in the in the baths at Lords stuck in my head is because, you know, as a teenager, they make you get completely naked, uh, which you're just not used to doing, mm-hmm. and then they wrap you in this sheet, um, and you're you're in there naked with two men wrapping this translucent sheet around yeah. you, and. Uh, what could be more, I mean, if they weren't 80-year-old priests, I mean, what, what could be more homoerotic <laughs> <laughs> under different circumstances? But, um, yeah, you're naked. You're very vulnerable. You're very aware of your own body. Um, there's this cold water, and people are saying kind of rhythmic prayers in Latin around you. Um, and it's a very 
haunting sort of yeah. experience. And it's a very austere stone bath. Yeah. Uh, and I remember um, mainly uh, this process of, of going through one curtain, uh, being asked to undress, and they put a sheet around you. And then you go through another one and they swap your sheet into something almost translucent because it's like wet, white cotton. Um, and yeah, it stuck, stuck with me because, uh, you know, like it would, uh, the mix of the the vulnerable, the body, the, the naked yeah. body and the church all together. So, you know, full disclosure here. Yeah. So I was that boy too. Okay, right. at, 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 I think maybe 15. Right. Um, in the same baths mm. in, in Lourdes. And my absolute fear was that I'd have an erection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Was, that was what that yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a oh. very... It, because it has all the tenor of almost a gym changing room in there. Uh, and you're just filed through yeah. with loads of naked yeah. men. Um, and... Yeah. Yeah. We should go back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can reclaim uh, that as well. Exactly, go, 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 exactly. Let's reclaim rocks. that one. Yeah. Yeah. As we as we as we move towards an end, you're you 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 wrote at the time um of your dad's death that um I think you said you would have given you would have given all the poems away um to to, to mm. bring him back. Mm. And and in the book you write really movingly about how um, I think the only thing that he wanted was um, to sit in the garden with his boys mm. and listen to mm. and listen to the bird song. Mm. I mean, yeah. what 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 a one yeah. what a man. Yeah, yeah. No, it was I was in Dublin. He was on the phone to me when he said that. Um, you know, you can't give things to get people back. Um, for all the talk that I've just made about running into the underworld, uh, you know, Aeneas goes down into the underworld to to uh, to save uh, Semele, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, to to bring someone back, to recover a soul. You know, you have Christ going down into hell to to bring souls back. Uh, you give up one thing and you get a soul back. Uh, you can't do that. Um, that is something that only exists in the in the uh, supernatural realm in the book. Um, and so, you know, perhaps in some ways it's it's easy for me to say what I would give up to have someone back because I can't get them back. Um, but I think as a as a consolation um, to have them almost living. In, in the imagination uh, and to, to free them uh, to live in the imagination of, of however many people who didn't know them uh, yeah. is, is quite a nice mm -hmm. afterlife. Yeah, he, yeah, I can give. He, he, you know, he was very clear about what brought him contentment, mm. happiness, it strikes mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. um, and what he, what he kind of wanted most. Mm -hmm. What about you? <laughs> Peace. Um, World peace. Yes. Uh, peace and being outside. I love to be outside. Uh, if, I had, if I had my choice, I would throw all the computers away and the phones 
I would sit outside. Um, I'm quite happy with, with a small number of things now. Uh, a few friends, a bit of, uh, a bit of peace and stability. Uh, I think as a younger person, I wanted big change and, you know, uh, adventures and all this sort of thing. I've seen where that gets me. So I, I'm quite happy <laughs> for a bit of peace now. Yeah. You know, I really wish you the, the, the very best with the writing way into the future. Thank you. Um, and I look, forward to I look forward to reading you <laughs> into the future. Thanks. Um, and, and with the book launch and all the, the real-life events that are going to yes. happen, which yeah. is wonderful. I'm delighted it's happening. Um, and, and a very big thank you from my colleagues in UCD, in, at EDI, uh, and from our, our wonderful colleagues here in, in, in the wonderful Mali. Um, we will, and I hope I hope this is okay. But I'd love you to read a little something um, in 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 Jared Manley Hopkins from his study, from his bedroom. <laughs> I well, would can, love can, that. Can we do that? Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Maybe of we course. can maybe we can knit that in. But yeah. but, but but for now, a, a, a very big and a very sincere thank you. From, Thanks from so us much all. for having me. It was a pleasure. A pleasure. Thanks, Paul. So, Sean, here we are in the room of one of the central characters in your book, the room, the bedroom, the study of Jared Manley Hopkins in, in Newman House on St. Stephen's Green. Um, you're going to read something yeah. um, from, from in, in his honour. Yes, well, I thought that since we're in the room of a, of a poet priest who was closeted, uh, I might read uh, a small section uh, in which I meet another closeted priest. Back home, in my room, I felt vulnerable and alone. The orange glow of the street lamps outside my window spread over the ceiling, and the shadows of people walking along the pavement elongated over the white plaster. As the people passed, the black forms shrunk and clustered across the cornicing until they vanished and were gone. I lay under the covers, freezing, the draft of a breeze cluttering the shutters occasionally, and my nose wet with the cold. My bed leant against a boarded-up chimney breast, and inside I could hear voices echoing above from the flats, carrying through the hollow passages of the building. Laughing, then silence, then again a voice. I did what I always did that year, when I was alone and heart sore. Took out my phone and tried to find someone to prize the light back in. Scrolling through the bright screen of photographs, messages buzzing through, I felt connected and desired. Eventually I found a man who wanted to come over, he was short, older than me, with dark hair and bright grey eyes and an odd innocence I couldn't place. When I opened the door of the building, he barely met my gaze, just ducked past me and hurried into the flat. He was furtive, like a man on the run, a man being watched. I closed the heavy blue door and clicked the latch pointed him to the door of my room, which was ajar, and watched as he went inside. I had barely seen his face. 
When I followed him into the room, he was standing by the bed and walked across to me. He hardly spoke. When I lent my face to his, at first he was quiet, then urgent, utilitarian. There was a sense of frustration and necessity to his movements, his hurried undressing, the lack of even friendly conversation or the forced banter I was used to. Straight afterwards, he got up to wash, standing over the sink in the bathroom and splashing water over his face and neck and hands like a bird shivering itself clean. I could see him through the frosted glass of the bathroom door, which swung open on its hinge behind him. After he was done, he looked up at me, meeting my gaze. In a hushed voice, quite serious, he told me that he was in training for the priesthood. The priest who carried out home visits here, who I spoke to sometimes in the building's communal garden, was his mentor. The priest's car, an old duck egg Fiat, was parked near the entrance. The man needed to be invisible to get outside without being seen. I nodded my understanding and scanned the hallway before I gave him the signal that no one was outside. By the door, he checked his pockets. Keys, wallet, presbytery keys, then left. Had he really just said that? I stood there, quietly stunned, as the latch clicked back into place. It was as though I had met a different version of myself. I felt sad, then comforted. There, walking off into the night, turning the key in his car and driving away, was a man I had escaped from being. But there was also a man who had not escaped. Thank you. Thank you very much. For me, literature, for me, writers, for me, the, the, the arts, in, in some ways, um, capture, capture what's often um, missed in conversation, what's often missed um, um, historically when it comes to the lives of people. Um, who, for various reasons in, in this country and beyond, don't experience an equal world, uh, a world that is accommodating, is embracing of diversity, and certainly a world that isn't inclusive. So uh, I, I, I feel the arts uh, and, and literature play a very, very central and important role in, in, in advocating for um, a more equal, a more just, a more diverse and inclusive society. Radio Molly.